I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is the Executive Director of Educators for Excellence, Sarah Idrisu. At age 11, having suffered through five different elementary schools in two different countries, Sarah took matters into her own hands and found a strong and challenging school 15 miles from home, which offered a rich and engaged learning experience. Sarah became the first in her family to graduate from college. Seeing the challenges in U.S. education firsthand, Sarah has dedicated her career to attacking and transforming the educational inequities in the Commonwealth and to giving teachers a voice in the policies that impact their students and their profession. Sarah is a former Massachusetts teacher, a Boston Public Schools District Administrator, and liaison to the Massachusetts Commissioner for School and District Transformation. Good morning, Sarah. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start way back. Um, I just thought it was so interesting when I read your bio, and I didn't know that about you, that you had gone through so many different elementary schools. So could you just talk a little bit about what happened at each of those schools and, and what does it mean that an 11-year-old struck out to find a school that would um, serve her better? Yeah. Um it's something that actually I didn't reflect on until I became an adult. My mother immigrated from the from Ethiopia to the United States because she was looking for the world's richest country, and mm-hmm. she thought Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, would offer her three children as a single mom the best education. And so we moved. Um, and when we got to Washington, D.C. public schools, it was far worse than the education experience that I had in Ethiopia. So after a year of moving around, she sent us back to Ethiopia to live with my father to get a better education. And I got a better education in Ethiopia. And unfortunately, war struck. And so I came back to the United States to the same school I escaped. Although I was a refugee of civil war, I actually felt like I was a refugee of educational inequality. Hmm. So I get back to the school in D.C., and in the fourth grade, I remember we were doing double-digit multiplication, and I put my head down because it was something I had already learned in Ethiopia in the third grade, and the teacher called on me and said, put your head up, and I put my head up, and she asked me why I put my head down, and I told her I've already learned this last year, mm-hmm. but she thought I was being smart Alex told pulled me to the front of the class and asked me to solve the problem. I solved it in like 10 seconds and sat back down. (laughs) And she was astonished right? and said, wow, you really have a lot of skill. You're really smart. I, you know, I knew that wasn't true. I, I knew I just had the opportunity to learn it and the other students did not. And so I got tracked and I got tracked and got opportunities, um, to be, you know, the, star student. And that made me realize that I needed a different educational experience. Um, because even though I was getting all these accolades, I was not challenged. I didn't feel like I earned any of the A's. I just showed up to school. Um, and I remember my cousins in suburbs would have homework longer than mine. They knew more words than I did. And so I started asking around and asking people at church, like, well, how can I get a scholarship to go to a better school? And I ended up applying to a, a program that allowed me to go to a school that was really great. And I flourished. Um, unfortunately, my siblings 
in my own household did not end up going to a different school, and they stayed in the same school. And they have vastly different outcomes than I do. And, you know, people talk about the opportunity gap, and they talk about it between white and black students and students from different socioeconomic classes. For me, it was in my own home. It, mm. it was something that I saw right there, and I saw it every single day until I went off to college. And I see the effects of it every single day now that I'm an adult. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And um, so do you, do you observe that, um, you know, because one of our colleagues and a, another leader in Boston, Andrea Campbell, describes a similar experience um, moving through Boston public schools as compared to her, her um, siblings. And do, do you see that being so involved in Boston public schools now, that tracking still happening where it's not only, I think there is a lot of tracking that, um, that is racially biased. And, and I don't know if it's specifically because of race that there's tracking, but, but, and maybe you have a point of view on that. Um, but do you see that happening the same, the same thing that's happening to you happening today in, in Boston public schools? Absolutely. Um, Counselor Campbell and I actually connect on that, on the mm. differences between our experiences and our siblings. And it's absolutely happening within the Boston public schools right now. Um, I can tell you that some parents know how to navigate the system and they know how to get access to things like advanced work classes, which gives students the ability to get higher level instruction and more rigorous instruction. Right. And then we have schools that are doing really well and schools that are need a lot of support. And so the students in those schools do fall along racial lines. And so based upon your race, you can predict if you're going to a high performing school generally or a low performing school. And so it does impact race. Um, and because of the nature of our country and the history of racial segregation and the history of things like anti-literacy laws, educational inequality, if we go back, was legislated. And so it's, it's no surprise that we see symptoms of it today. And the reason why I'm so passionate about advocacy and being intentional about transformation is we've got a long way to go to break these, I, I think, habits of tracking, of um, thinking it's normal that a black student would get half the quality of an education, the education of a student who's white in Wellesley. That's not normal. And I think you we've know, gotten you to talk, Yeah. You talk a little bit though about how important it is for parents to, um, you know, at least in part, um, be leading this journey, um, for their children, which makes entire sense. And, um, and yet it feels like, um, generally speaking, not in this COVID-19 environment, but generally speaking, parents um, are not that engaged in their child's education. And so for a parent who doesn't know how to figure out the rules, um, should schools be doing and should teachers and should administrators be doing different things to engage those families who are not as fully engaged in, in their child's um, academic journey? It's a very important question. Um, We know that family engagement was super important during COVID-19. It highlighted the importance of the connection between the school and the parent. Mm -hmm. And there are things we know we can do in order to promote that. Things like teachers and schools giving parents weekly 
updates on their students' progress towards academics. Oftentimes, parents report that schools reach out to them to give them information about bad behavior or bad grades. Right. And so, you know, if that's the only thing you're hearing, then there isn't a relationship there. It's a, It can be a little bit adversarial or even as a parent constantly getting that, you know, it's anxiety provoking. Right. And so it can't be a relationship. And so we've got to put more systems in place where we're proactively communicating information to parents. And, um, and I, I, when I was a teacher in Massachusetts, you know, one thing I did was invite parents to do shared reading with their students or tell them, you know, what book their child is reading or take pictures and just text it to them. Those aren't systemic solutions, but you know, now that I'm a mom, I know how far that goes. Um, And so if I can go talk to myself as a teacher back in, before I was a parent, I would understand how significant those small interactions are. Right. Well, so Sarah, now you run Educators for Excellence, which is, you know, a massive, um, teachers organization. And, and before that you were involved in the administration at Boston public schools. You then went and worked for the current commissioner as he was leading a um, very successful turnaround up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And so you bring a lot of, um, interesting knowledge to the table. Can you talk a little bit about, um, E for E educators for excellence, um, its purpose, how is it different than the teachers' union? Um, give, just give, help us yeah. level set around what the organization does. Absolutely. So Educators for Excellence is a national movement. We have 35,000 teachers nationwide in six cities. And in Boston, we're, that's our newest chapter, um, we have about 1,200. And our goal is to elevate the voices of educators and make sure that they are leading in policy at all levels and making sure that they are not just recipients of change, but also driving that change through their lived experience and professional experiences. And so we organize around issues that they care about. We have, our teachers are, 80% of them are union members. And so we, you know, our teachers are the union. Um, What makes us different is that we are not doing the contract negotiations. Um, You know, that's not our role. Our role is to make sure that Policy is informed by, by teacher experiences and, and building teachers up as leaders mm-hmm. so that they can drive change. And how do you how do you interact with the teachers union? The teachers union is very important, um, and our and our educators. You know, it's very important for us to have a relationship with the union that's positive. Um, what we try to do is make sure that our educators are involved in their union to drive policy change. And so that we're not, you know, the union is the most powerful, one of the most powerful vehicles for policy change. And and that cannot be ignored. Mm. I think it's imperative that we drive educators who are solutions oriented um, to their union and make sure that they're, they're they're informing their union on, on how to be driven. Yeah. Because I guess the flip side that I'm curious about is, do you feel, do you feel like the union can also, given its structure and its history and its power, can it get in the way of providing students with a great education? It depends on the leadership. The union is made up of people. Mm-hmm. And so um, depending on, on the nature of the leadership, the union can actually, positive relationships between management and unions, as research has shown, to drive positive effects. And that is really important to note. And so 
it's important for us to make sure that teachers are engaged. Right. And the majority of teachers, right? Like I feel like a part of a big part of your initiative and, and a part of your leadership is making sure that teachers' voices are heard. Absolutely. And especially in their union. Um, you know, right now, Jill, unions are doing one of the most important negotiations within their districts about how we reopen schools. Yeah. And we need teachers to engage in that conversation through their union and make sure that, you know, that conversation is solutions oriented. Yeah. And you're really looking at this, I would imagine, twofold. One is how do you reopen schools given the COVID-19 crisis or paradigm that we are now living in? And also, um, I mean, your work has always been about equity. And uh, there's a much louder, not new, but louder conversation right now, or maybe more people are hearing it um, around um, racial inequity. And, um, and that also the conversation includes police officers and police officers are in many schools across the city. Um, and I know you, you have a lot of conversations happening around this and about, um, well, I'll let you talk about it, but around maybe replacing the kind of the traditional policing strategy with um, counselors and positive relationship um, building and, and those sorts of things. Would you mind talking about, I mean, both of those things are so critically transformational. And so I wonder what you think about them overall, but then what are the steps to really taking advantage of our district in challenge, being challenged by both of these crises to make true transformational change? Yes. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, um, what we know to be true and the district review that was released right before the pandemic closed schools revealed that deep inequities in our education system, especially in Boston, are not new. This is, this is the district review that was done by the state. Yes. It was the yeah. audit um, that, that laid out where there needs to be, where there are strengths and where there needs to be deep improvement in the district. Yeah. And we were actually organizing teachers to read that audit and to pull out the solutions that they believe will transform the district. And what is the most important solution? Because we like to make sure that teachers are the, the people driving the policy solutions. And so we had conversations with over 100 educators and 10 teacher leaders who were driving this conversation for two months. Hmm. And what they pulled out, and this was during the pandemic too, they were still excited to talk about this deep inequity, was that curriculum and instruction was extremely variable across the district. A student yeah, 125 can have, schools, right? Right. 125 schools. And a student can have a different experience from teacher to teacher, from grade to grade, and especially from school to school. Do you think do you think that includes going back to your kind of elementary school years uh, as a, as an individual um, that there are some schools in the district that would never provide the uh, foundational education one would need to be tracked into kind of the uh, the more elite schools the um, the exam schools and, and on to strong colleges? Yeah, there are. Um, and I would say classrooms and subjects, because there are great teachers, great teaching in every school. Um, I've worked with the lowest performing schools in the state, in 
And I've seen great teaching in those schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so based upon the level of rigor and quality of your first year class and then your school, you will get a very different experience and your mind will be challenged in very different ways. And so teachers pulled that out as a, as a very big problem. And when COVID-19 happened, we, while we were having this conversation, that problem was further highlighted because in virtual school, the differences were so vast and we were right. unable to even understand who was getting a quality education and how do we measure that? Because we didn't have that foundational understanding as a district of what that means. And teachers were having very different interactions with their students and parents were very confused. You have parents with two children in two different schools or two different classes seeing their students to do very different things and engage in very different ways. Um, And so Hmm. COVID-19 revealed that. And then we also got into a racial pandemic and the racial uprising, which elevated um, the Black Lives Matter movement again and the differences in the way people are treated in our systems. And what was different about this moment is that it wasn't just about the policing system, but every single system and and the way that Black people are treated differently and disparately than others. And in education, that is a conversation that I'm eager to have because one, we know that there is such thing as a school to prison pipeline where students who are black and brown are overly disciplined and undereducated. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you do that? There's less opportunity. And when you have reduced literacy rates and reduced mathematical skills, gonna, there's going to be less job opportunity. You'll see that in Boston, we have so much opportunity. We have these great hospitals. And when you go to them, you know, your doctors are not BPS graduates. Unless it's exam schools, it's very rare to see a traditional high school graduate in these professions. And so why aren't they accessing these opportunities is a big question. Um, And so we at Educators for Excellence talked to our teachers about this. And the first thing we picked up was the presence of police officers in schools and the question of what is the purpose and what does the research show? This was definitely a controversial conversation. Some teachers felt like the the presence of police was warranted, and many said that it doesn't make sense and it doesn't actually reduce student disruptions, and in fact, it makes students feel unsafe. Hmm. And metal detectors, too. They said if students want to bring in weapons, they're going to bring them in. They know how to do it. And so why do we have metal detectors? Why are students coming in through metal detectors and getting searched before they go to class? that cognitively disrupts your ability to learn and see the space as a safe place for you to be nurtured. And so we're demanding that all police officers be removed from schools because research shows and our teachers' experiences shows that it's not helping improve relationships with with students and improve their sense of safety. And when we talk to educators about the benefits of those school resource officers in schools, they did say there's some of them come from the community and their relationship with the students is important, but that's not the function of that role. So we believe that they, that, that funding, the $4 million towards school resource officers can go towards guidance counselors. And there's no moment in our history, in our recent history, where students needed guidance counselors more than this moment. Um, and so that was an example of a recent campaign that our teachers launched and has gotten a lot of attention um, and is bringing forth a much needed conversation. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. We, um, at at school committee, one of the um, comments from the public was from a teacher who taught, I think he he teaches at Madison Park and he talked about this. So there are two schools in the same building in uh, Roxbury. One is Madison Park and one is the O'Brien. And the O'Brien is one of the three exam schools in the city. And on the Madison Park side, all entrances have um, metal detectors. And on the O'Brien side, no entrances have metal metal detectors. And, you know, he was questioning the purpose, but also the message that we are giving to an open enrollment school student versus an exam school student, not only about their own school, but about the school that sits next to them. And so has that been a part of your conversation? Just, you know, also even the allocation of these things is not consistent throughout the district. Absolutely. So that teacher was an E4E member who um, was part of, is leading this campaign. His name is Michael. And he, that was actually one of the anecdotes that shocked us that yeah. in this school building, it's not about the safety of the neighborhood. It's about what we believe about the kids that enter those doors. And so he noted that and he even said, and I haven't looked into this, but he shared that the architect of the Madison Park complex designs prisons as well. And if you look oh, really? at, uh, yeah, and it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't looked at this, but when you do go to Madison Park, the building does feel like a prison, and that's you know, well, it's the same. Way. I forget what the um, what the style of architecture is, but it's the same style of architecture as the um, as City Hall. Yeah, brutalism. Brutalism, that's, thank you. you know? <laughs> it, I mean, I it just is. Yeah, <laughs> not the best architecture for kids. Um. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. <laughs> it <yeah>. is. <laughs> not a lot of light. Not a lot of light, and students need light. And so, yes, and the work that you do, Jill, around food and nutrition at schools is another example of this and fits in this movement. It's no different. Why do some kids get fresh, nutritious food and others don't. And what does that tell them about their bodies and about how and how they learn to care for themselves? It's so consequential. And, and you know, you went into the school, and I remember you sharing, and saw how egregious those lunches were and did something about it. But, you know, my question is, I know the students were complaining about the lunches, and I know that the parents were complaining about the lunches. Why wasn't it that? They had the agency to say something and do something. And, you know, there's a form of um, low expectations that are placed in our communities that we sometimes inherit. And so I'm trying to dismantle that and say students deserve the best in the world, regardless of what they look like and where they're from. So, so talk a little bit about, you know, if we, if we move police officers, medical detectives, all of these things that are probably very fear-based in terms of um, responses out, outside of the schools, we bring in more counselors, more, more folks who can build relationships, manage relationships that are positive with students. How, how does that work? I, you can, I can understand it as I'm saying it, why, why it should work. Um, and, and what, is there a relationship that the school should still have with police as they, you know, because we, we rely on them to help us manage and keep our city safe. And yet 
right? There should be a message of like assistance and guidance. And so I'm just, I'm curious how, like, what does the new world order look like as if BPS were to shift away from, from the way they do things today? Yeah, I think police have a place to protect the city. What we want to make sure is that police and schools are not functioning as disciplinarians Mm. and first responders to student distress. Mm. And what we know is when the pandemic, when we re, when we go back to in-person learning, at, I don't know what point, but when we do, I know that students are not only thinking about what they experienced in COVID-19, and we know that students have disproportionately been impacted based upon their race and their, their income. They're going to be going experiencing extremely traumatic events. I've heard from students who are calling teachers or teachers are telling us about students who call them and say, hey, my mom has COVID-19. What do I do? Mm. You know, they're experiencing very traumatic things. And and when you have students whose parents are essential workers, they've been the adults in the the household, unfortunately. And so the first thing that they need to see when they enter schools again, are people ready to embrace them and teach them, not police officers and not metal detectors. Right. And I know that if those were my children, like my son, if I walk into a school and he has to walk through a metal detector after experiencing a pandemic and a racial uprising, I would yank him out of that school and put him in a different one. And so let's make sure that we're treating all students in Boston public schools like they were our own. Yeah. Do you worry about that, about what um, the current climate is going to do to um, schools' relationships with their students? I do. Um, The number one thing I actually worry about, in addition to their mental health, is the level of academic experiences that they will have. Mm. I, I know that my academic experience, the rich literature and, and the enriching experiences, it has made me who I am today. So right. There are other things that need to be in place, but that basic foundation needs to be in place. And when students come back, yes, they've experienced a lot of traumatic things and are going to need all the supports. But my secondary fear is that because they've experienced so much stress and so many challenges, we'll lower expectations for them and yeah. think that they can't do it. And that is also an inequality and an injustice to them. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I worry about that too. I worry that we're we're not looking at um, our current um, situation as a completely different paradigm than the paradigm that we kind of all grew up in um, and existed until around March, you know, of this year for all of us in Boston. And that we're trying to really put a square peg in a round hole right now by forcing kids and teachers back into schools when and not really noticing that. There's this enemy out there, which is COVID-19, which has created a completely different paradigm in which we need to exist, which makes new things, threats and and other things like being indoors versus being outdoors, you know, others less um, threatening. And um, and, and I worry that it also has created situations where, you know, 10,000 students, for example, in our own city couldn't access, access school and that we're not we're not keeping an eye on the notion that if um, children don't have 
access to food, shelter, and love, right? Basic human needs first. Um, that there, we, we can't, we can't go straight to education w- without those things. Um, and so I, I, I'm curious how you think the teachers union and, and specifically through the lens of E for E is thinking about this as it's having discussions about the right way to come back to school. Yeah, when the pandemic hit and shut down schools physically, we quickly began talking to educators since March and have been organizing town halls, having one-on-one conversations, and we've surveyed or talked to over a thousand educators in Boston about this Mm -hmm. issue. And resoundedly, we know that this pandemic has completely upended what school looks like. And what we've heard from educators is that every single teacher first feels like a first-year teacher. By the way, that's a terrible feeling. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And it means that you are often confused. You don't know what's what's working. You don't know what's not. Your tools are, are, you know, and you need your tools more than ever, but you don't know which one to strike up. And so from that, we've also heard from educators that they're spending more of their time on non-instructional on practices. Yeah. Yeah. For example, we've heard that 47% of educators have spent more time reaching out to parents and students to get engagement rather than focusing on their lessons. And, and mm-hmm. you know, that fundamentally changes the nature of their job. Yeah. In addition, we've also heard educators say, a third of them, that they have not received professional development on e-learning. Hmm. Once the coronavirus outbreak started and prior to the outbreak and, and, and quarantine, they did not feel equipped for this moment. Yeah. So, well, I'm not sure anybody felt, I mean, I probably moved that dial up. To oh, 100%. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can say 100%. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that, that means that our educators need to be equipped to teach well online yeah. or in person. And they need those supports. They also, and this goes back to the guidance counselor conversation and family liaisons, we need more personnel doing that work so that educators can focus on teaching and learning. And also they need time. They need time to actually improve their craft. And so whatever we can take off of their plate so that they can just focus on giving the best instruction possible and and having the best relationships with their students possible and pushing that instruction to be more rigorous and targeted to the needs of students, then the more we can combat learning loss um, because it's a very big issue. And so, yeah, yeah, it is a big issue. So one of the things that we've been batting around over at the foundation is um, because this is such a big issue and because we probably aren't going to be able to um, truly measure it for a while, right? Like things need to get back to some sort of steady state before probably everyone will agree to lean in and measure it and not feel threatened by the um, results of um, measuring it. Um, it, I'm curious how you think about that because it does, it does strike me one that there are, there are students um, and families who are, we are not, they are not um, provided with the things that um, they need in order to meet just kind of the essentials of um, living a healthy life in in these conditions. And then it is also very difficult for many of them to access 
um, and online education. And there's a lot of fear in certain parts of the community that make them worried about sending their students back to school. And so I'm curious how we should think about that, because I feel like on the other side of things, we do know how to recover from learning loss. Um, I don't know if you're a part of the commissioner's work around acceleration academies, but they appeared to be very successful at tackling deficits in, in student learning. And um, it, it does seem like we, we actually know the antidote to learning loss. It takes a commitment to delivering it, um, but that you know maybe we should be looking at this a little bit differently in, and just accept that there is going to be learning loss, but that what we don't want there to be is human loss. Um, and so we should be taking care of people, teaching them as well as we can, supporting teachers and parents in that effort, because parents are now a part of their students' education in a way that they never were before. Um, and then really kind of acknowledging that school's going to look different for a while once this is all over, because there is going to be a bunch of loss to make up for. Uh, and and how do you think about that? And are those conversations happening at all? Yeah, it it is definitely at the forefront of teachers' minds. When we talk to educators and have surveyed them, most of them have, have shared that the unrealistic expectations of catching students up stresses them out. They yeah. want to do it. They are feeling woefully overwhelmed by it yeah. uh, because at first we were talking about learning loss when we assumed that this would only be a month or two. Now we're talking about potentially for some students interrupted education if they haven't accessed or were not able to access online learning due to their their um, opportunities at home. And so it, you're right. We do need to first accept, you know, I think the first step in, in, um, in grief is denial. And, you know, we have to accept this is, there's going to be learning loss and there is yeah. going to be a lot of it. And we shouldn't um, ring the alarm in such a way that we pit ourselves against educators, but think about how we can marshal up support such as volunteers um, and whatever we need to do to make sure that students get the most love and learning as possible. Yeah. And so it's, you know, when I talk to educators, they are consumed. I think like we don't understand how much teachers worry about their students. Yeah. And um, that is one of the most beautiful things about working with educators is I hear it in their tone. They talk, they call them their kids. What are my kids going to do? What are my kids eating? You know, how am I going to catch my kids up? Um, and, and, so, and so, you know, there's a myth that teachers aren't thinking about that, but it, they definitely are. As a society, we're going to, well, as a district, we're going to have to, as, an, as a city, we're going to have to figure out what's the most important skills for kids to know at each grade and subject. There's so much to catch up on that we just need to, someone called it Marie Kondo, the curriculum, and say, like, these are the catch-up items and be it very clear that this is what students need to know by when. And then what is, this, what is the way that we're going to make sure that we make it engaging and we make sure that learning is constantly happening for the students who need it most? So, Sarah, what, what do you think we should be doing, given the environment and all of the, um, I don't know, I guess all the unknowns, for, for teachers as we think about back-to-school strategies, and I guess for parents too, right? Because if we're going to be in any way in a virtual educational environment for a while, then, then, then parents are, are just by default going to be much more involved. And so are there things that 
you think the district should be thinking about that they're not thinking about right now in terms of supporting teachers and and or um, parents? Absolutely, Jill. Now is the time for teacher leadership and to listen to teachers because they are going to be expected to take on unprecedented challenges and you cannot demoralize them in the pursuit of those challenges. In fact, this is the time to empower them and assume best intentions. And so I know that one thing they will need is just to be listened to. A lot of educators are sharing that they are immunocompromised. Um, I heard of a story of one educator who's actually taking out life insurance because both she and her partner are educators. And in case that in case something happens to them because they have to go back to work or if they have to go in person. Um, and, And right now, Massachusetts educators are organizing themselves because of feeling unheard. And rather than channeling that energy towards grievances, which they have the right to feel grieved, um, let's channel it into their power to make transformational change for students. And what that can look like is, um, one, providing options based on their needs for either in-person, and I mean, I don't think many people want that, but a hybrid or um, fully remote. And if if we, we know that remote is going to be with us, we need to make it a real learning experience. Right. I mean, I do think that the district has a long way to go in order to create a remote learning environment that truly we can, within which we can truly educate all students. Um, And it it worries me that we haven't been thinking about how to do that from the day we had to shut down school until now, because uh, I think that you're right, that teachers are going to need a lot of supports if they are back in school. And if we end up not in school again and, and remote, what's changed from, you know, what happened in March? And, and then there's been so much time to, to think about this and to make investments in, in, in the right place. And I think that's happening in other parts of the country, if, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, there are definitely bright spots that we can learn from. We have been treating remote learning as a temporary Band-Aid. Yeah. Um, it's no longer that it's going to have to be a real option. The exciting thing is we know remote learning can work. It will not replace the in-person love and relationship building and, you know, being on Zoom all day isn't the best thing ever, but it can be a lot better and we can do things like allow students who previously didn't have access to AP classes because it didn't exist in their school to go to other schools, right? Virtually. Right. And to learn from students all across the city, I think we have to get a vision that is rooted in possibility and get innovative. Um, and I think right now we're operating from a place of fear and worry, and, and, that's, and you know, that, that's understandable. But as a community, we've got to see this as an opportunity that we have to rise to because of the circumstance we're in. Um, I, I agree with you. It, 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 we do need to treat it like the, the new paradigm that it is. Um, and if we do that, the possibilities become much bigger. Absolutely. And, and hopefully we quell some of the fear because it's, um, it is an extraordinary time. Um, and so I want to go back a little bit. We were also talking about uh, racial inequities and the Black Lives Matter movement and, and how that pertains to school. But more broadly, you have started a new organization with LaToya Gale and um, 
And she reached out to me just the other day too. I've got, I've got to talk with her about this, but you've started March Like a Mother. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization and, and what are you setting out to do? Absolutely. March Like a Mother for Black Lives um, was founded because LaToya and I, at the wake of the George Floyd killing and murder and many others, we grieved, especially as mothers. And then what was different about this moment was mothers from all walks of life grieved mm-hmm. with us when they heard George Floyd call out for his mother. And we felt a responsibility to answer that call. Yeah. And so we said, hey, on this day, let's, let's make sure that we stage a, a rally and protest that can allow mothers from all walks of life to engage in this critical conversation. And we expanded the policy conversation from, from only talking about police brutality and police reform to also including the full spectrum of policies that involve black lives, including maternal mortality, which disproportionately affects black women. Yeah. And including things like um, police reform, but also economic justice and all of those things, how like channeling it. And it was a really great event and we're turning it into a movement um, because education for a long time, we didn't realize is cannot be a single issue that our students are impacted by the wealth of policies that are limiting their opportunities. And so it's important for us to engage in multiple issues at the same time. So what are so what are you going to do? I mean, you're engaging, right, the most the most powerful group of females on the planet, mothers. And yes. and so what are you going to do with all of that power and energy? We're building a community um, that is committed to racial justice and to taking action and to supporting one another in that journey. Mm-hmm. And right right now we're focused on rightfully so on child care. We've partnered with um, neighborhood villages and we're hosting a webinar facilitated panel with Ayanna Press, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley about the importance of childcare as a racial justice issue and as something that all mothers can really relate to. And especially in this pandemic, how important it is to have that access so that families can work and students can go to school um, and, and that we're not making trade-offs unnecessarily. Yeah, I, lo- I saw that. I'm attending that. I um, I was so happy you were doing that because in the conversations that I've been having about racial inequity, it's um, it's interesting to see where um, folks are thinking about putting investments and um, you know, with the intention of making systemic change. And it, it seems to me that this is um, in some ways very similar to our general healthcare epidemic, which is you know spiraling healthcare costs out of control, which is that we we as um, overall, we have taken a very um, treat the symptom approach. And uh, instead of looking at underlying mechanisms of disease and, and really treating those, and, and in this case, in, in the case of America, we suffer primarily from chronic disease, and that's the thing that cripples our country. And um, in, in the case of racial inequities, it feels also like you have to, we really should be attacking it with money and transformation at the source, which is, you know, probably pre-birth, right? And, yeah. and, but that I don't hear enough yet, um, including from, from myself and, and from um, our foundation about the investments that should be made systemically um, into kind of 
pre-birth and following every individual through life and checking ourselves anytime an inequity starts to present itself, right? Like, I just don't know how else you create a cure that's transformational for this, for this, you know, disease called racism. Um, and, and so I, I am so interested to see where all of you take this because I think um, it's beautiful that it's focused around mothers. And I do think that, you know, there's something, there's very, there's a lot of power in that, in that there's um, a lot of intuition that um, you can evoke and, and to really think about then how do you, um, how do you put investments in the right place? And so I was very happy to see that you were partnering with neighborhood villages because that, that, that gets, I think, more at the core. You know, it's, it's children and families really at the beginning stages of their lives. And, you know, I think what made my work different once I became a mother, before I became a mother and I was an educator, I focused on K-12 to and the importance of high-quality education mm-hmm. for all students. When I became a mother, um, actually when I, gave, when I gave birth in the hospital, one of the midwives, who was also a black woman, came up to me and said, make sure you sign up for Metco because you so want to make sure. Yeah. Yep. You want to make sure that your child gets a good quality education. And I don't I mean, know if I, all of our listeners understand that dynamic. Maybe you could yeah. just explain, just un, un, you know, unwrap that a little bit more. Sure. So Metco is a program that allows students from Boston to get an education in the suburbs by busing them out. Um, and and also allows other communities to have the benefit of diversity. And so for the waiting list is very long and and I didn't realize mothers, especially black mothers secretly tell each other to do this as soon as they give birth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was instructed, mm-hmm. don't do it. And this is from a medical professional. Right. Um, amazing. And so the urgency and, and survival mechanisms that we as mothers and especially black mothers have to, and endure in order to make the system work for us is unjust. And we have to make the system work for people, not the other way around. Right. And that is what, what is so exciting about galvanizing mothers, but also pairing it with the work that we do with education um, and, and, and taking this, this approach. But I also appreciate, Jill, you naming the importance of attacking racial inequality head on. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to recognize that a lot of the problems we deal with are about people not believing other people are equal. Yeah. And it might not be conscious, it is subconscious, but it, it looks like someone in one school having instruction, like a worksheet, and they do worksheets all day, and then they don't really have really high engagement. And then another person of a different race in another school is expected to have a super engaging educational experience. And one of the educators I talked to, um, we were in a group conversation about race. One of them said, I just want my students as a white educator to have, to be, um, to be full citizens, meaningful members of society. And the other educator pushed back and said, we never talk about white students that way. Right. That's right. And And it was like a moment. It was a beautiful moment because it was yeah. in the safety of our, of our community, but it, you know, that small, and she thought she was saying something positive, right? She didn't understand right. that there was so much loaded in that. And to see another educator call her in and not call her out, call her in to this important dialogue about racial inequality and the way it shows up 
in our mindsets, but then in our practice is, is truly transformational. And so I, I'm excited to think about what this means and for how, how we change systems and how we change mindsets to match the systems as well as the day-to-day actions. Yeah, I think you're right. That's, that is a beautiful story. It is, none of this happens um, quickly, and, um, but, it, but it can happen quietly. And um, that story is, is really beautiful because if we all have patience with one another, um, we probably end up in the same place um, in a better place um, more readily than, than if um, it's caustic. And, um, and so we should, I think we should, we need to be paying attention to you. Can you, um, just talk a little bit about how people can follow your work, both at, um, Educators for Excellence and now March Like a Mother for Black Lives? Um, how do people hear what you have to say? Well, one, um, you can sign up to be a member at Educators for Excellence by going to E4E the letter E, the number four, and E.org. And you can receive updates and opportunities to take action and and attack educational inequality. And you can also do the same thing at March Like a Mother by going to marchlikeamother.org and signing up. And we'll be keeping people posted on both fronts um, at both E4E and March Like a Mother on how you can be part of this, both movements. And I'm I'm really excited to be able to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they're, um, they're intertwined, or or it'll be good that you will make them intertwined. Yes, they are intertwined, um, and at the base of all of this is about power building, tapping into um, a community of people who otherwise would be individually at despair in front of their computers, right? Like scrolling right. through the internet and social media going crazy, right? but giving them something to do with that energy together. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing time. It's an amazing time to be in Boston. It's it's just pulsing with brilliant people like you and like Latoya, and like so many others, um, and really working towards the good of families in Boston and especially um, for kids in Boston, which is which is amazing. So thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for joining us today. It was wonderful to thank catch you. up with you a little bit. Thank you so much, Jill. And you're definitely one of the people who make Boston exciting as well. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for having me. Yes, it's, it's our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sarah Idrisu, education and equity advocate and trailblazer in the Commonwealth. Sarah's compelling story and her work in education reinforces the truth that everyone has the right to a quality education, regardless of their zip code. Everyone is important teachers, students, parents, neighbors, and will be extraordinary actors as we move through the COVID-19 crisis and take another stab at dismantling racial inequity. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.